Sermon text this morning is Psalm 80, and I'm going to read the whole thing. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, stir up your strength and come and save us. Restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have given them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us a strife to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. Why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch which you have made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. Thus is the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty Father in heaven, we praise you. At this time of year, we get to carefully, thoughtfully consider the coming of Jesus Christ. We consider how it affects our lives. We, consider our, we get to consider our great need for him. We ask this morning that what we, the words that we hear would not just go in one ear and out the other, but they would take root deep into our hearts and they would change our lives, help us to grow from them, and help us to love you more because of them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Where does change begin? Where does change start? There's a story in one of C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicles of Narnia. There's a story in there about a boy named Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved the name, Eustace Scrub. Not a good kid, a nasty boy. He didn't, of course, he didn't consider himself nasty. He thought he was a pretty good kid. But in, during the story, he gets turned into a dragon. He's turned into a dragon. And he goes to this pool, and he looks down at the pool, and he sees himself as a dragon. And of course, the purpose of that is he's always been the dragon. He's always been the bad guy. Eustace just couldn't see it. He couldn't see himself that way. He thought he was a relatively good young boy, but he wasn't. So he sees himself in this pool as a dragon and begins to try to tear this dragon's skin off. He can't do it. Aslan comes and helps him. But where does change begin? It begins when we see ourselves as we are and we see our need for God. That is where change begins. If you don't see your need, you will never change. If you think you are fine, if you think your life is just fine, you will never change. And we've seen this with people, right? Seen people on paths that are just absolutely destructive. And we tell them, listen, that's bad. Shouldn't be going down that path. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's a bad relationship. Maybe it's just stupid choices. Okay? And you try to tell them that's bad. That's bad. They can't see it. They can't see it for the life. No, this will work out just fine. If I spend money hand over fist and run up debt, I'll be just fine. And we're all sitting there, everybody from the outside, like in the story of Eustace, everybody from the outside knows Eustace is not a good kid. Everybody knows that. Just like that friend of yours who needs to change, you know, everybody can see it, but they cannot see it themselves. Okay? So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 80. We'll look at the process by which God delivers us, by which God rescues us. 
And the beginning of that process really is kind of behind the psalm. The beginning of that process is the recognition of a need, the recognition of a need for deliverance, the recognition that we need to be rescued from something. And this is in verse 1 and 2 of the psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. The word shepherd is the beautiful word there about God's care for his people. You lead Joseph like a flock. You dwell between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Stir up your strength and come and save us. The writer of the psalm recognizes the need for deliverance. They understand that they cannot be saved outside of God. They understand that they need to be rescued. Now, we think about this when we're talking about non-Christians. Okay, we think about this non-Christians. We, we have non-Christian friends of ours. Maybe you've talked to non-Christians. And you know the problem they have is they can't see themselves as they are. They can't see themselves as separated from God, bound for hell. They can't see that. Okay, so we understand that in a non-Christian context. But it's no different in a Christian context. Yes, we're the covenant people of God, but we still have to see ourselves correctly and we still have to change. The beginning of change is recognizing the need for deliverance. That is where change begins. The Lord brings difficult things into our lives so we understand this. We don't know the exact situation behind Psalm 80. Maybe it's post-exile. Don't know exactly what's going on. But whatever the case is, something has happened. The vine has been broken down. The hedgerows have been torn up. The enemies are laughing. Hard things have been brought into the life of the people of Israel. Difficulties, struggles. Why does God do that? Why does God bring those things into our lives? Because without them we would not recognize our need for God. We would not recognize it. If our lives were smooth and easy all the time, if all your needs were easily met, and they have been, sometimes we've been in those situations where life is smooth, okay? We don't pray like this when life is smooth. We don't cry out to God like this when everything's fine. When do we cry out to God like this? When do we say, stir up your strength to come and save us? It's when God brings something difficult and hard into our lives. And this is why he does it. Sometimes we can look at, hard providences, and we say to ourselves, why? Well, this is one of the reasons, because we get independent, or we think we're independent. We get separated from God, and we no longer see our need for God. We no longer recognize that we need him to come and save us and deliver us, okay? The pleading, the begging type of prayer that we see here, which is a magnificent prayer, this pleading, begging type of prayer only comes when we understand we are dependent for God and desperate for him come and save us. Difficulties, these hard providences, do not strip away our independence. They strip away our feeling of independence because we are never truly independent of God. There's never a point in our life where you are free from God, free from God meeting your needs, free from God caring for you. There's never a time where that is the case. Okay? So what we have in this psalm is a recognition at the very beginning, a recognition that we need to be delivered. Okay? And that is where all change begins. That's where all change begins. And it doesn't have to be anything dramatic in your life. It doesn't have to be some amazing thing. It can be simple. We need God to help us with our children. We need to plead before God's throne for our children. Do you think you really don't need God to raise those kids? Do you really think you'll be fine without God? Are your prayers about your children kind of ho-hum, not very fervent, not very zealous? Why? You need God to help you raise those children. You need God to help you care for those children. What about your spouse? Okay. Do you think you can just manage without God? Or do you plead with God to help you? Help us, Lord. Okay. So the whole point of this initial section is the understanding of a need for deliverance. And it can be big, 
Okay, there's big things, or it can be small. But what we're trying to do in this first part is cultivate a dependence upon God, a recognition that we need the Lord to come and save us. You will not change. You will not grow if you do not have that attitude towards God. If your attitude is one of, I am really independent of you, Lord. I really don't need you. And now we would never say that out loud. None of us would ever say that out loud. But we function that way. We act that way. And so God brings, he breaks down the vines. He smashes things. And we're like, okay, Lord, I really do need you. And he's like, yes, you needed me back there too. But you forgot. And so I had to break down your vine and smash things. So you remembered that you needed me. Okay. So this is the first step. As we walk through the psalm, there's going to be three steps. This is the first step, the recognition of our need for deliverance. We need God to come to us. We need to be saved. We need to be rescued. All right. But the second thing is, the second part of it is running to God. Now, it is possible for hard things to come into somebody's life and them not turn to God. Okay? I had a friend of mine who was drifting from the faith, and I prayed. I remember this very specifically. I prayed, Lord, bring hard things into his life. Snap him back from this drift. Get him back to you. Okay? Well, God did bring hard things into his life. His life got very hard, very difficult. But guess what? He never turned back to God. He just kept on going. Okay? So God can break down the vines. He can smash the hedgerows. He can bring difficult things into your life and you not run to him. We see this all throughout the Bible. The Lord brought numerous plagues on Egypt and every chance, every time he was given Egypt a chance to turn and repent, Egypt didn't. Even when the firstborn was killed, even after the death of the firstborn children, Egypt still rebelled against God. I know there's like some discussion there about the hardness of heart of Pharaoh and different things like that. But the point is, Hard things don't automatically make soft hearts. Just difficulties do not automatically create soft hearts. Israel, before she went to exile, God brought all these difficult things into their lives. All these things. And did Israel turn? Did Israel repent? Did Israel change? No. Israel just kept on going. Just kept on going. Until finally God's like, I'm done. Exile it is for you. We turn to the book of Revelation. God's bringing these plagues down. There's boils and there's sores and there's lightning. There's, there's all this stuff coming down. And what do the people do? Do they repent and turn? No. They blaspheme the name of God and they refuse to repent and turn. Okay? So one of the things you need to ask yourself is when God brings something difficult into your life personally or into the life of a corporate life, think about our nation, when God brings something difficult, do we truly turn to God? Is that what happens? Because in the psalm, that's what they're doing. They're turning to the Lord. They're not trying to fix it. They're not trying to solve it in and of themselves. They're turning to God. Every man wants to be his own savior. Deep down inside, we all want to be our own savior. And until we get rid of that, until we abandon that idea and say the only one that can save, the only one that can deliver is God, we will not see true change. The second thing in this section about fleeing to God is they don't understand. Look at verse 4. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? It does not make sense to the psalmist why this is happening. What is going on? He doesn't understand. All right? And this is the sign of true faith that when we don't understand, when it doesn't make sense, we still flee to God. We still run to God. Israel is saying, you planted us, verses 8 through 11, you planted us, you caused us to take deep root, we filled the land with these mighty boughs that stretched from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River, these mighty boughs that spread out over all of Israel. We were a great tree. And you have broken us down. 
why? Verse 12, again, why have you done this? And I don't think the psalmist knows. The psalmist doesn't understand. He doesn't bring up any sin here. I mean, there's psalms where the psalmist brings up sins and says, I know why this is happening because we've turned our back on you. Please save us and deliver us. Repent of our sins. But they don't mention any sins here. I don't think the psalmist understands why God has done that. But this is the sign of true faith. When we don't understand, when it doesn't make sense to us, we do not leave God's presence. We flee into his presence. Let me give you a couple of examples of that from Scripture. The most obvious example is Job. Okay, you know the story of Job? God basically takes everything. I mean, whatever you've lost, it is pennies compared to what Job lost. Job lost everything. Okay, even his wife says, listen, blaspheme God and die. Get out, just give up, Job. And Job says, no. Now, does Job understand? I mean, you read the book of Job, and Job doesn't understand. Several times, Job is like, why? What is going on here? Why did you do this, Lord? But he does not leave the presence of God. He keeps coming back to God. That's what he does. And in James 5.11, it says, remember the patience of Job. Remember the, the steadfastness of Job. What does that mean? The steadfastness of Job. Job stayed with God. He did not leave God, even though none of it made any sense to him. He didn't understand it. Another great example of this is Habakkuk. I'll give you one other example of this staying with God when it doesn't make sense, which is exactly what is happening there in Psalm 80. And Habakkuk, you guys probably don't know a whole lot about Habakkuk, but Habakkuk is a minor prophet, and Habakkuk has been told that the Babylonians are going to come and conquer Israel. Okay? He doesn't like this. This makes him really upset because the Babylonians are wicked. They're terrible people. Israel is God's covenant people. Why, God, are you doing this? And this is how Habakkuk prays. Why are you doing this? Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear me? And we don't pray like that. God, God doesn't mind us praying like that. God doesn't mind those prayers. How long? Why? I think we can get a little nervous about that, but that's where singing the Psalms is so good. You know, reading these things are good. How did the men of God in the Bible pray to the Lord? How long, oh, Lord, shall I cry to you? Okay, this is what Habakkuk says. Habakkuk doesn't understand. So he goes through and he keeps asking all these questions of God back and forth, back and forth. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he says this. I will stand my watch. I will set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Habakkuk says, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to wait for God to answer me and I'm not going anywhere else. And that is a sign of faith. That is a sign of faith. It does, he doesn't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to him. Okay, why God is sending this wicked nation to judge his covenant people. But Habakkuk says, I'm not going to leave God's presence. I'm not going to go someplace else. And this is one of the great signs of true faith. When God breaks down the vine, when God causes things to collapse in, we don't flee his presence. We come to him. And I've seen people, when things get hard, things get difficult, maybe it's physical problems, maybe it's relationships, whatever it is, they drift from God. They leave God. When things get hard, they're not like Job. They're not like Habakkuk. They're not like the writer of Psalm 80 who says, it's difficult, but I'm going to stay. Okay. So we've got this sort of process here. First, we have to recognize our need for deliverance, recognize our need for God to come and rescue us. Second of all, we have to stick to him. We have to flee into his presence. Okay. Even when it doesn't make sense, we have to go to God and plead and pray. Okay. And that's what we're called to do. Third step is, how does God answer this prayer? Okay, so what, what is the psalmist asking God to do here? He's asking God to come and save him. He's asking God to visit, verse 14, return, we beseech you, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see and visit this vine. All of our lectionary readings today, two of them are read in, uh, in the, earlier in the service and then Romans 1 as well. All of them are about God coming to us, God coming to us, God rescuing us. Jesus is the answer to this prayer. 
Jesus is the answer. Come rescue us. Come save us. Come visit this vine. How many times did Jesus talk about Israel as a vine in, in the Gospels? Numerous of his parables. There's a vineyard. There's a vineyard. He came to visit the vine. He came to visit Israel. So the answer to this prayer is the first coming and the second coming and everything in between. The answer to this prayer is the coming of Jesus Christ, okay? The presence of God. This has always been the great covenant promise, okay? That God will be with us. Listen to a couple of scriptures here. Exodus 29. There I will meet with the people of God and it shall be sanctified. Talk, he's talking about the building of the tabernacle, by the way. There I will meet with the people of God and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God and brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. This is the great covenant promise that God is going to come to us and dwell with us. Here's some other scriptures. This is the building of the temple. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Zechariah, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I will come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul is saying, we are the temple. Where is Emmanuel now? He is here among us. Okay, that is where God is. In Revelation 21, 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. From Eden to Revelation, this is the great promise. This is the great prayer of God's people. Come and dwell with us. Come down and visit us. This is how we're rescued. This is how we're saved. This is how we are delivered. We need an Emmanuel. We need a God with us. All right. So this is the answer to this prayer is Jesus himself. And this is why the lectionary ties all these readings together. Isaiah 7, Matthew 1, Romans 1, and Psalm 80. Because the answer to this prayer for God to come visit us is in uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. So we have the coming of Jesus Christ, the first advent, and then we have the coming of the second advent. But the question I want to answer this morning is, what about in between? Where do we find Jesus? Where do we find this prayer answered between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ? Where does God come to us? Where does God visit us? Where does he stir up his strength and save us? Okay. And the answer is here in corporate worship. This is where we meet with Jesus. This is where we come and see his face. This is where God says, my face will shine upon you. I will be gracious to you. Worship is not just an emotional, cathartic experience. It's not just us coming in here and hanging out together, saying hi, being friendly, you know, paying, you know, having some guys up here talk, okay? That's not what worship is. Worship is where Jesus comes to us in the form of his word, in the form of the sacraments, and he changes us. That is the great prayer of this psalm. Restore us, change us, restore us, turn us back. The psalmist doesn't just want to see God. He wants to change. He wants to change. And I think a lot of us, when we come into worship, what we're coming in here for is an experience. Or we're coming in here because we want things to change out there. 
Or maybe we want the person to change beside us. You know, that old, that old thing. You know, well, I want that guy to really change. But the purpose of worship is for Jesus to meet with us and to restore us and to make his face shine upon us and to change us. That is why we are here. So we see our need. We beg God for deliverance. Where is he going to give that deliverance? Where is he going to answer those questions? Where is he going to change you? Here, in this place on Sunday morning, 9 or 11. I guess 11 for you guys. 9 for the previous guy. Okay? On Sunday morning, that is where he's going to change you. And this is what I want you to get from the sermon this morning. When you see a need in your life, whether it's big or small, when you bring that need to God and you cry out to him, Lord, stir up your strength and come and save us, the answer to that prayer, nine times out of ten, is going to be found in here on Sunday morning. This is where he meets with us. This is where he answers that prayer. So don't come through those doors all lackadaisical. Don't come through those doors because you want your kids to grow necessarily or because you want your neighbor to grow or because you want the world to change. None of those are bad. None of those are bad. But come through those doors because you are praying, restore us. Restore me, O Lord. I need to hear this word this morning. I need to be changed. I need to be sanctified. Okay. So the need, the cry out to God, and the answer to that need is found in the worship of God here on Sunday mornings around the word and around the sacrament. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the coming of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would help us not to see, uh, help us to see worship rightly. Help us to see what a magnificent gift you have given to us in the word and in the sacraments. Help us to see those just not as gifts for us to enjoy, but gifts for us to, cha for, to change us, to make us into new people, to restore us as the psalmist says. I pray, Lord, if there's any here who do not understand their need for Christ, that you would move their hearts so they would believe and turn to him. And as Christians, Lord, help us to recognize our need for you, cry out to you, and to wait of expectation on Sunday morning that you will meet those needs and deliver us through the word and through the sacraments. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.